Tappers, what's up? It is the Sunday, Monday edition of the Daily Tap. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're celebrating the Labor Day holiday in the best way possible. We are going to talk about the improbable Milwaukee Brewers victory on Sunday, as well as talk through Adrian Hauser's dominant performance, what that means for the postseason, really both what both these wins mean for the postseason, because I can argue both have meaning, both have purpose for what this Brewers team can look like in October. They are 14 games away from clinching a playoff spot. The magic number is at 14. It cannot get any closer. The Brewers are postseason ready. We're also going to talk about Graham Mertz and Wisconsin Badgers and what was a disastrous performance by the Badgers. They have no one to blame but themselves and all that went wrong, not only with Mertz, but also with the team itself. Why Mertz might not be the guy that I think everybody hoped he could be as well with a lot of other things and why it's not a bad thing that Penn State and Wisconsin played in the first week. And lastly, I'm not concerned about Jordan Love. I think there's some Jordan Love concerns setting in, and people just have to think about all the factors that are going in to Jordan Love at, as we start the regular season and move past Jordan Love and on to the Green Bay Packers starting roster. All right, let's get into the show today. Let's talk about the Milwaukee Brewers. So I was going to lead with the Badgers. I was all about leading with the Badgers, talking about Graham Mertz. I was expecting the Brewers that they were going to lose. Um, they really didn't play well. It was 5-1. to one. Tyler O'Neill added a home run in the seventh inning. Tyler O'Neill is one of my least favorite players in baseball. The guy just gives off a lot of Dan Ugla vibes. If you remember Dan Ugla, who would have a jersey that was a couple couple uh, centimeters too short, clearly was on something, probably was just a douchebag in real life. That's the vibe I got from Dan Ugla. It's a similar vibe I get with Tyler O'Neill. Tyler O'Neill definitely like has a harem of St. Louis strippers that he goes through. That that's my opinion of Tyler O'Neill. So, anyways, he hits a big home run. It's five to one. I'm like, all right, whatever. You lose. I'm gonna do a review. Be like, all right, the Reds lost. The Cardinals are still really far away. It's not a big deal. This isn't a statement series for the Cardinals at all. I think that's how the St. Louis media would probably play it, honestly. And the St. Louis and St. Louis would also be creeping closer and closer to the wild card lead from the Cincinnati Reds. And maybe the Cardinals could play their way into the playoffs with a good September. But then the Brewers just kept chipping away. They loaded up the bases in the eighth inning with Christian Yelich to play. A big moment was on the precipice. Yelich had an absolute rocket off the bat. And it looked like, all right, this is going to score a couple runs. Paul Goldschmidt catches the ball and robs Yelich of at least two runs, maybe three runs, and a triple. Like So this, it completely set it back to zero. And you're like, fuck. They are so close. But then they got some offense from their bottom of their order. Jackie Bradley Jr., who's not known for big hits this year, came through with a really big hit. And Luke Molly, who continues to be something as a guy that got called up uh, with Manny Pena's injury. And then, then the fireworks started. Jace Peterson gets on, drives in Bradley, and then Eduardo Escobar walk, and then the big damn grand slam. And the Brewers win the game and come back from being completely dead to now winning. And it says everything about this Milwaukee Brewers team. 
they do not quit. I think they lead the league in comeback wins. They are very close to leading the league in comeback wins. They're right there with the Reds and the San Francisco Giants this season. In that category, the Brewers never die. The game is never over. I had a friend of mine who left the game very early because his girlfriend or fiance is just not a fan of baseball. And I felt so bad for him because I'm like, I cannot believe he missed that moment. I saw Rami Makhlouf, who does radio for uh, 105 or 1250 to fan, say he left the game in the eighth inning. You do not leave with this team. This team is never say die. Like you could have left probably on on Friday, right? That was like 15 to four. That game was over, all right? Like the Brewers got their asses kicked. That was just a combination of so many things. You had Adam Wainwright's 300 start with Yadier Molina. You had the Brewers coming back from San Francisco. You had Freddie Peralta making his first start in a couple weeks. Like, I'm not surprised in the slightest that the Brewers got their asses kicked on Friday. But in a lot of cases, you do not leave the ballpark with this team. This team has been the comeback crew all season long. And that's the type of thing you need in the postseason. That's the type of thing that is going to make you better come postseason football, baseball, excuse me. I'm watching the Notre Dame-Florida State game. And so I'll turn my body a little bit so I don't say football instead of baseball like an asshole. But anyways, it's exactly what you need. You cannot quit at any point. Like Even if your starter doesn't have it and he gives up a ton of runs early on, you can still come back. Crazier things have happened in playoff baseball. And I think this team is so built for the playoffs, it's not even funny. And they just have the pitching and they have the offense to go along with it that make them a dynamic duo come postseason. And a bullpen. They have everything you need. It's hard for me to look at any other team in the National League that is better than the Milwaukee Brewers. I think the Dodgers do not have a deep pitching staff. I don't think the Giants have a deep pitching staff either. I think it really is the Brewers and everybody else. Like I know the Giants have some nice things. I know the Padres have some nice things who may or may not be in the playoffs. But it's just, I don't know. I think the Brewers are head and shoulders above everybody else when it comes to postseason baseball. And one of the the qualities is the comeback ability. I know the Dodgers have done it. I know the Giants have done it this season. But still... It matters that the Brewers are never out of baseball games. That is a huge, huge thing for this Brewers team. And they showed it again today. And Jace Peterson, man, I I was all I was kind of hesitant of what Jace Peterson was earlier in the year. Jace Peterson always seems to have a moment for the Brewers in almost every win. In every win, there is some moment for Peterson. He always takes pitches. He took seven pitches against Gallegos, and it was it was a great at-bat. And gets on base with a hustle double, and that's what Jace Peterson has been all season. And I was curious as to put him push him towards the top of the order. He batted second today, but like, and he's batted first a couple times this week. But I think it's warranted with how many pitches he takes, with his ability to get on base. I mean, the guy's hitting two seventy eight. 72, excuse me, with an on-base percentage of 389. He's an old-school guy, not hitting a lot of home runs, but he gets on-base. I mean, his nickname is On-Base Jace, which I hate. I don't like it at all. But still, it's it's why he has the nickname. The guy just continually gets on-base. And really good stuff from Jace Peterson uh, in this game and and that at-bat. And then Dan Vogelbach, what more can you say? Dan, Dan's been shelved with a hamstring injury. 
The Brewers kept him on the roster. They didn't get rid of him. And I think that's partly because the guy is a clubhouse enigma, like in the best way possible. I think he adds to the clubhouse. They love him. They watched his post-game presser. Like everybody was there ready to celebrate Vogelbach. Like he is beloved in that clubhouse. So they didn't want to get rid of him, even though they really didn't have a roster spot for him before September's expansion. Because you looked at it and you're like, well, Rowdy Telez is kind of the same player as Dan Vogelbach. But if Dan Vogelbach can become this power hitting pinch hit option for the Brewers, that's an embarrassment of riches for Milwaukee. And that, to me, is stuff you need come postseason. You need those guys. The Jace Petersons and Dan Vogelbachs of the world, those are what win World Series. It's not always the stars. It's those other guys. It's how, you know, Jackie Bradley Jr. was one of those guys for the Boston Red Sox. You know, he was an ALCS MVP. And that's sometimes the difference right there from being a good team to a great team. Speaking of embarrassment of riches, let's talk about the pitching staff too. So you also had Adrian Hauser, awesome performance on Saturday night. Adrian Hauser, complete game shutout, allowed three hits. The first Brewer since Kyle Loesch in 2014 to throw a complete game shutout. Hauser was electric and just really awesome stuff from him against the Cardinals. Worked really fast. Like the game was over, I think in two and a half, two and a half hours. Like it was absolutely crazy how quick Hauser worked. He struck out seven. He did not walk anyone. He almost had himself a Maddox, a hundred pitches total. Hauser had 24 first pitch strikes out of 29 batters faced. Uh, 31 called strikes. I mean, the guy was rolling. He had a game score of 89. The Brewers jumped on Hwang Kim early, and that's all they needed. They didn't need much from Hauser last night. Hauser was in another level just dominating that St. Louis Cardinals offense. And a Cardinals offense that was explosive the night before, putting up 15 runs. Hauser just shut the door the next day. Hauser's probably at this point what? He maybe is your fourth starter for the postseason, but maybe not. And to go back to the commentary about embarrassment of riches, like this pitching staff has it. You have the big, the three-headed monster and Freddie Peralta, Brandon Woodruff, and Corbin Burns. That's one section of this team. Then you have Brett Anderson, Adrian Hauser, and Eric Lauer, where you look at those guys and you're like, all three of those could be your fourth starter in the postseason. You're probably not going to need them for the division series, but in the NLCS, you're going and maybe the World Series, you're probably going to need that fourth starter. It's highly unlikely you can get by with just three starters. So the question is, who do you go with? And I think for Craig Council, it is all going to be matchup based. I could see something where Council says, all right, we're going to go with Hauser and we're going to go with Brett Anderson. And then our kind of long guys are Eric Lauer and oh, yeah, by the way, Aaron Ashby, who also. Let's not forget Aaron Ashby, who's going to be there next season. Like Aaron Ashby is like the next great pitcher for the Brewers. I think Ethan Small's really good too. Like the Brewers have a pitching stable. Like it's not just a couple guys. It is a fucking stable. It's like WWE, right? The corporation or the four horsemen, but it's more than that. It's like the six horsemen. Like it's crazy the amount of good pitching the Milwaukee Brewers have right now. I think you're going to have Aaron Ashby and Lauer kind of be three to four inning guys for the Brewers come the postseason. Like, they're not going to be put, 
they might be put in like sort of high leverage situations, but those roles where maybe a starting pitcher doesn't have it. Maybe they go two innings and they it's a quick hook. Like they've thrown 60 pitches in the first two innings. Maybe they've allowed two or three runs and they just say, you know what? We're going to go forward here with another guy and we're going to go with either Ashby or Lauer to kind of steady it and get it to the back end of that bullpen. Maybe put up some runs because that's kind of the roles I see for Lauer and Ashby. And then I think Hauser and Anderson will basically get the nod based on matchups. And then it will be, that's just how Craig Council does it. Like it, it makes no sense for us to say, all right, which guy is going to be sort of the postseason fourth starter until we know what those matchups look like. Unless, here's the only way I'll caveat the unless. The unless is if Hauser just goes on an absolute heater to finish the season. Like if this is the start of a heater for Hauser, and remember, Adrian Hauser's had some really good months for the Brewers in the past. Like if this is what the start of it, and Hauser just goes off for the next month, he'll be your fourth starter for the Brewers in the postseason. It won't even be close. And maybe he even gets a start in the divisional series if he's that good. You know, the Brewers having the comfort of Burns, Peralta, and Woodruff all have worked in the bullpen before, that's kind of sneaky big for the postseason because you see that sometimes where starters become bullpen pitchers when you need them to. And whether it be a game seven or game six, that can happen. So these games are, both of these games, Saturday and Sunday, were very important when you look at it from a postseason landscape. Saturday, it was the pitching staff embarrassment of riches and all that they have come come October. And then on Sunday, it is the depth and it is the bench players and it is the clutchness of the Brewers. That's what that's what we see right there. So I'm really encouraged with this Brewers team. How can you not be? They start a series against the Phillies today, or well, Monday, I should say. We'll put, we'll put this up Sunday. So they have a series with the Phillies on Monday. Um, Phillies were hot, and then they lost two out of three to the Miami Marlins. The Brewers and Phillies last met in Philadelphia in early May when the Brewers were actually really struggling. They, they got swept by the Phillies. It was a four-game sweep in early May. So whether the Phillies have the Brewers number or not remains to be seen. You have Zach Wheeler and Brandon Woodruff going on Monday night or Monday afternoon. Wheeler pitched a complete game shutout against the Brewers last time around. But Wheeler has been struggling of late. He's kind of played himself out of the Cy Young Award running. Then you have Eric Nola and Eric Lauer on Tuesday night. And then on Wednesday night, you have Kyle Gibson and Freddie Peralta. So Freddie will look for a bounce back. Brewer games also get bumped back or bumped ahead to 640 instead of 710 um, as the school year starts for everybody. So we're going to go get 640 games. I don't hate it, actually. I, I kind of like the 640 games. Gets done earlier. Makes life easier for me to podcast. I had a blog this week, last week, about how I used to be such a fan of late night games. And now as I've gotten older and older, I hate them. And now I realize like I have so limited time to do things like podcasting. I'm like, you know what? I need my I need as much time as humanly possible. So I'm not a fan of the late games as much as I were when I when I was like 23 or 24. I loved them when I was a kid. Now, not so much. All right, let's talk about the Wisconsin Badgers. So the Wisconsin Badgers suffered a tough loss against the Penn State Nittany Lions. 16 to 10. I didn't see it coming. I actually thought the Badgers were in pretty good position to win this game. 
if you listen to Friday's show. I thought they had all the things they needed to win this football game. In a lot of ways, they probably should have won this game. If the Badgers were better in the red zone, they would have won this football game. They had three opportunities, and they came away with zero points around the goal line. That just can't happen. If the Badgers score three touchdowns there, they blow out Penn State. They blow the doors off Penn State. Wisconsin is one of the headline teams of week one. Even if they get field goals, they probably win this game. And instead, the Badgers lose 16-10 to because they could not finish. And a lot of the problems for Wisconsin last year reared their ugly head again this year. Most notably, Graham Mertz. Now, I had a buddy of mine, Doe's good friend, friend of the program, say that he didn't really think Graham Mertz was the real deal last week to me when we were, or two weeks ago when we were hanging out. And I thought that was really interesting. Doe's is a huge Badger fan, really usually is full-throated in support. Like, he, he, it's rare that he's sort of negative against guys, but he was negative against Mertz. And he laid out some reasons, and look... It's hard for me to look at Graham Mertz and support him. Now, I saw a weird take that's like COVID was a, a reason for Mertz struggling, like that he's played in front of fans for the first time and that was nervous, like bullshit, all right? I don't want to fucking hear it. I really don't because this was what Graham Mertz was last year without fans. So why were the fans a disadvantage? If anything, the fans should have been an advantage. It was a packed house. It should have rattled the Penn State offense, which it did. I mean, Penn State had no offense in the first half. Now, they exploited the Badgers in the second half, which we'll get to, but they needed to strike, and they were too predictable, and they did not just let Mertz be unleashed in a way. I feel like there was way too much up the middle with an inexperienced interior line. I mentioned that could be an issue for the Badgers. It was. Those guys did not look ready early on. They, they got a little bit better as the game went on. I know Chad... Ches Malusi did rush for over 100 yards, which great, but that was that there wasn't enough. It's like the Badgers looked so predictable so often that you do wonder if Paul Chris needs to sort of reinvent his offense a little bit. That Paul Chris is playing an offense that is was good 10 years ago, but I'm not sure it's it's working in today's college football. That's remained to be to be seen, honestly. Because if the Badgers struggle again, let's say they have an eight and five season or seven and six, whatever, I think you'd then come away with it saying the Badgers need to kind of look at how they change their offense. I'm not saying the Badgers need to go to like a spread, okay? That is not what I'm advocating for. Rather, I'm advocating for more of a West Coast style approach that maybe is a little less run heavy, more play action you know, misdirection, screens, like Penn State was blitzing so much and they were getting to the quarterback that if you just ran some screens, whether it's a tight end screen to Ferguson, whether it was a screen to Malusi, whomever, right? A wide receiver, like a quick hitch, a bubble screen that's super popular in today's college football. Like any of those would have worked and it, it just, they, they didn't have that in their arsenal and I wondered why. Or slants, you didn't see enough slants. Like, there was so much I thought wrong with the Badgers offense that it does go beyond Mertz. But I, I just wonder, is Mertz the right quarterback for what the Badgers want to do? And you saw that Chase Wolf did have some success with this Badgers team last year. And the notes from camp were that Chase Wolf was really good and had a really good camp. So you have to start wondering a little bit, right? About what that ceiling is for Graham Mertz. We all thought it would be this excellent and top tier guy 
and Jack Cohen went to go start at Notre Dame, and they're playing as we as we talk. So we'll see what happens with Jack Cohen and Notre Dame. And some might look at that and say, well, they should have kept Cohen. They that's a podcast topic for when the Badgers play Notre Dame. It's a better long-term decision to go with Mertz. In a long run, from a recruiting standpoint, Mertz is the right decision. Cone is the short-term, like, yes, that would make a lot of sense for this team. But I'm telling you, from a long-term view, it makes more sense to go with Mertz. And they obviously felt confident in Mertz. So what, what needs to change? I think they just need to work together more and find what Mertz likes, what Mertz doesn't. You got to be better with handoffs. That that to me cannot happen. Not in college. Not in premier college football. Zach, Graham Mertz fumbling the football like that was is absolutely inexcusable, and it happened three or four times. That's JV level football. That is not what you see at a high level college program. Even if that was happening at, like, let's say Vanderbilt, right? You'd be like, oh, fucking Vanderbilt, you know, embarrassing team, you're UConn, right? But still, like, that that's that's JV shit. Graham Mertz needs to be better there. And I don't know if that's a, a mental thing. I don't know if he's just thinking too much. He just needs to kind of rein it in. Now, you get Eastern Michigan. I, I haven't really looked and dug into Eastern Michigan. They have been good in the past. I know their their program has kind of been more on the rise than on the downfall as it used to be. It's still a get-right game for him. And then you get a bye week before Notre Dame. So this week is crucial for Wisconsin to kind of start figuring out what they have in Graham Martz. And if Graham Martz still struggles, I don't think you make a quarterback change before arguably the biggest game of the season against Notre Dame, which will become a must win if Wisconsin wants to even have aspirations of a playoff appearance. And by the way, I don't know about that because Iowa looks really good. Iowa, to me, sent the biggest statement of anyone in the Big Ten with their big win against Indiana. I I really liked Iowa in that game. I think I talked about that on the podcast on Friday. But still, I didn't expect Iowa to come and just absolutely blow the doors off Indiana like that. And I think that's something that should scare a lot of Big Ten teams. Just had a Florida State fan give a finger to the crowd that ESPN caught, which is absolutely great. You'll see that on the socials, I'm sure. You guys will be like, all right, Charlie, yeah, we saw that 10 hours ago. Still, nothing's wrong with a good middle finger from the crowd. It's well worth it, right? Regardless, the, the Badgers just need to play better. And then in terms of their defense, their defense was pretty good in this game, but way too many big plays. And I don't know if that is just a Scott Nelson's too slow for guys like Jahan Dotson, which if he's too slow for guys like Jahan Dotson, guess what? He's going to be too slow for Ohio State. Did you see what those guys did against Minnesota? He's going to be too slow for Notre Dame's receivers too. That's something you got to understand really quick right away. And then, or is it just a defensive scheme thing? Because Nelson needs to be deeper than the deepest. That cannot happen. That is inexcusable shit as well. Like those big plays, as good of a defense as Wisconsin had and as well as they played, those deep bombs were such a reason why Penn State won this game. You can really come down to less than 10 plays of why Penn State won. The deep balls from Clifford, the blocked field goal early on in the first half, the fumbled snap by Mertz at the goal line, um, 
you know, there are so many of those little plays in this one. It's not that Penn State dominated this game. I did not come away impressed with Penn State football at all, really. I felt like Penn State was the same team I thought they were when I talked about them on Friday. It's like they turned the ball over too much. I don't know what they have in Sean Clifford. Their defense might be all right. I, I think their defense is a little bit better than I expected them to be. I will say that. But again, is that a predication of the Badgers being just subpar there? Or is it that Penn State's defense is really good? I think Eastern Michigan and Notre Dame will tell us a lot. I know I realize that's a far spectrum, but I'm serious. Like I just think you're going to see a lot different there. But yes, I'm not advocating for Graham Mertz to lose his job. I don't think that's what should happen. But I do think there are more questions than answers about Mertz. And a lot of the people who weren't believers in Mertz are further away from believing in him than they were last week. And those who might believe in Mertz, those who might think Mertz could be the guy and still think this guy has you know, the ceiling of a top-tier quarterback in college football, I think those people are less and less and kind of fading away. So like I said, Eastern Michigan's really big for Mertz, and then we'll see about Notre Dame. And the storylines will be abundant for Notre Dame and Mertz. And for Paul Christ, he needs to start doing a little bit more. He cannot keep it so conservative and keep it so tight and rigid. There needs to be more runs to the outside. There needs to be more screens. It doesn't need to be a spread offense. That's not what I'm advocating for, but a more creative power style football from him. And maybe we'll start seeing the Badgers turn the corner, but it's looking like a lot of the same for Wisconsin as we saw in 2020. Lastly, let's wrap up with Jordan Love. So Jordan, this might be the last time we talk really in-depthly about Jordan Love. I thought Tom Silverstein's comment column today about Jordan Love was interesting. It was sort of highlighting what Jordan Love did this preseason and this training camp and, and if Jordan Love is really going to be the future of the Green Bay Packers. I think Tom Silverstein is very smart. I think Tom Silverstein has his ear to the ground of the Green Bay Packers. That said, I feel like this column's a little short-sighted. Aaron Rodgers had a brutal first preseason. Uh, Aaron Rodgers did not look like the quarterback of the future. A lot of people were ready to write Aaron Rodgers off. Remember, before the 2008 season, the Packers drafted Brian Brom in the second round. And you had guys like Merrill Hodge saying that Brian Brom was going to take over the starting spot from Aaron Rodgers. No one believed in Aaron Rodgers for three years. So to act like Jordan Love needed to be a deity in his first preseason work is short-sighted. It just is. Jordan Love didn't need to be great. Jordan Love showed some things. Jordan Love showed some promise. Are there things to work on like Silverstein points out? Yes. Third downs, long long passes, um, you know, his ability to sort of make plays. Like there there are things that were they were critical of Jordan Love and they were for good reason, right? But they're all sort of young quarterback things. To just say, "Oh yeah, this guy's a star and we know it." 
I actually think that would make it a lot harder on the Packers and a lot harder on Aaron Rodgers. You know, Brian Gunacuz said he had a fantastic camp. And yes, Brian Gunacuz probably has to say that because if he's like, we're disappointed in Jordan, the storylines would be abundant. Of course, he's going to say Jordan Love had a good good training camp. But yes, he needs some time. And as Gunacuz pointed out, like this was his first game action in two years. He didn't play in any sort of game action last year. So this is two years. And the the takes about COVID-affected Graham Mertz, that actually should be used for Jordan Love. Like that take to me is more for Jordan Love than anybody else because Jordan Love hasn't played for two years. It's crazy to just immediately expect Jordan Love to be a god off the bat. That's not... That doesn't happen. You know, Mac Jones, yes, he looked great. But guess what? Mac Jones played last year. He played for Alabama, who's basically a pro football team. So Mac Jones stepping up to the plate and being awesome for the Patriots and starting day one is not a surprise. Look at Trey Lance. Trey Lance showed some awesome things and, you know, he made the social media, but he didn't really have that good of a preseason. Trey Lance still looks like maybe a year away. And that shouldn't be surprising. Trey Lance played one game last year. Trey Lance, really similar to Jordan Love, if you wanted to kind of make the comparison, it's very, it's similar. And I would even argue Love outplayed Lance, which isn't a surprise because Love's had a year of tutelage of Aaron Rodgers, Luke Getze, Matt LaFleur. Like, he's had guys around him. And Lance will get into that Shanahan tree and he'll start working his ass off and probably by November he might be ready but I wouldn't be surprised if Jimmy Garoppolo is the quarterback for most of the season as long as the Niners are able to keep their head above water Jimmy Garoppolo got them to a fucking Super Bowl even though there'll be calls for Lance on every bad Garoppolo start Lance might be a year away and so it's not surprising they didn't have that good of a good of a preseason Justin Fields did for the most part. Didn't have that great of an offensive line, but Fields did what he could. And again, goes look, Fields and Jones played in high-level competition last season. Jordan Love didn't. Jordan Love just practiced. And and now he will go back to just being a practice player. And like I said at the open, it's probably the last time we're really going to talk in depth about Jordan Love unless he's traded or something in the middle of the season, which I highly doubt. But again, nothing would surprise me about this story. Um, And Love now has to just be an awesome scout team quarterback. Luke Getze talked about it in Silverstein's column that like it's all mental for Jordan now and make the most out of those scout team reps. And Jordan Love could be a vital asset to the Packers with his ability to use his legs. He's going to be able to mimic some of the, the... dual threat quarterbacks that the Packers are facing throughout the season. Arizona comes to mind. I don't think you'll have to worry about it for the San Francisco game because I think, as I said, Jimmy Garoppolo will, Jimmy Garoppolo will still be the starter. You might have to worry about it for the Bears games with Justin Fields. You may have to, to be concerned about that when it comes to... I don't know if Joe Burrow would be in that, that category. Well, Mahomes against Kansas City, Russell Wilson... Uh, for Seattle, Lamar for Baltimore, Baker for Cleveland. So Jordan Love's going to have a lot of opportunities to emulate some of those quarterbacks. And I, I think that's only going to help him learn, right? That's And if he gives that team a good look, like that'll only make the Packer defense better against those guys. And so 
I think Jordan Love still is a guy who can be a superstar. I don't think that we are immediately throwing everything out because Jordan Love didn't have this awesome preseason. And unfortunately, in the one game where maybe he would have had a moment with the Jets, he wasn't able to play because of a rotator cuff issue, which sucked. It sucked that we missed out on a, a preseason game of Jordan Love. And again, there's a lot of unknown, man. Like, it's just not entirely clear. It wasn't entirely clear with Aaron Rodgers, even when Rodgers got the football in 2018. Like, it was not known that Aaron Rodgers would be that dude. And it took a little while. So to act like Jordan Love is immediately going to become Patrick Mahomes is totally false. And we need to do a better job in the media of understanding some history of quarterbacks. Some quarterbacks are going to be ready day one. Others, it's going to take some time. And look, Matt LaFleur is not going to have an offense built for Jordan Love just yet. But when Jordan Love is ready and when Jordan Love takes over this team, Matt LaFleur will have that offense designed for him. That's why I'm so high on the Dolphins, which I haven't really talked about other teams in the backers. But Tua Tagliavola, Tua Tagliavola, I've Tua. Let's just try Tua. Let's do it that way, okay? I, I can pronounce his name. I've done it off the off the mic many a times. I, I know you guys might not believe me, but I swear to God. Tua did not have an offense for him last year. And Chan Gailey did not want to run basically an offense built for Tua. It was built for Ryan Fitzpatrick. That's why I think Tua's going to have a good year. It's probably why I have the Dolphins in the playoffs this year. I think the Dolphins are going to have a really, really strong year with Tua. And a guy I kind of like in the fantasy world, by the way. And so, yes, I am not ready to just completely throw everything out with Jordan Love because they were a little rough in preseason. And that's, to me, like it's, it's just not the way to go. It's just not the way to go. I think Jordan Love is going to be all right. And again, this is probably our last Jordan Love topic. We'll get to Packers Saints this week. We'll talk. We did. I think we did an eye on the enemy with the Saints, so we won't do that. We'll talk what Packers offense looks like against the Saints defense. What the Packers defense looks like against the Saints offense, and then kind of a wide scale preview of the NFL and what I think the Packers are going to do. Am I going to pick the Packers to the Super Bowl for the upteenth year? Absolutely. I'll already tell you that. I don't know who their opponent's going to be. It won't be the Chiefs, though. I'll tell you that right now. I'll give you that as a little tease. That is a tease for you and for the rest of the people. All right, that does it for our show. Hope you guys enjoyed it. We will be back on Tuesday. We'll have a Tuesday show um, talking about Packers. Sure, we'll talk about Brewers Phillies and anything else that comes across the wire. Uh, that'll be good for us. All right, guys, take care. Have a good one. Bye.